and get to Acts chapter 21. If you're using the Pew Bible there in front of you, it's on pages 930 and 932. Some of you, if you, especially if you're newer to our community, will say, are you serious? You're going to read that entire, that's, that's a page and a half, is that two pages? And what I've always been convicted on, although we often take just a verse, or I have been known to preach just a word. When it comes to God's word, far more important that we remember his, not mine or any earthly preacher. And so if I need to be cut short, for God's word to be extended and proclaimed, then may it be so. And I think that I think that's right. And I could I could summarize this summarize this well for you, and trust that you have read it ahead of time. But I believe that we are called to the public proclamation of God's word. Now we're in a narrative. In Acts, it's a narrative, so we have this extended story, and really the last quarter of Acts is, is the story of Paul's final journey to Jerusalem and his arrest and his trial. And there's a lot of repetition in that. And so as you lean into this, as you receive, if there's, if a, there's a rabbit trail that the Lord is taking you on, go on it and listen to him. If he's prompting things to mind that you haven't been thinking of already, follow that. If you're getting distracted and thinking about things that you need to accomplish later today or tomorrow, try to cut that off. And come back to the Word and let God speak to you. And then I'll say a few words on this passage as Paul, again, is journeying back to Jerusalem. He, we left him when he was just arriving in verse 17. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have now believed and they are zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that now you have come So do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are already under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, well, we've sent them a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. So when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. See, for they had 
previously seen Trophimaeus, the Ephesian who was with Paul in the city, and they supposed that he had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to these people. And so when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in Hebrew, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Now I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received even letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand. They did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, well, he came to me, and standing by me, he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight, and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know the will, to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him 
saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who were killing him. But he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Well, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out if what they were shouting against him was true. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Well, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are we about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. And the tribune answered, Well, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. But the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. The reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of all of your word. You said every part of it is God-breathed and is useful. So even a story that brings up so many questions to us that may not even resonate with us in the place in history, would you now speak through it? Even just one thing that would stir our hearts and draw us closer to you. I know for me, when I watch Paul from this lens of Scripture, I'm both convicted and encouraged at what you have called me to, to stand firm and to proclaim who you are, to be unashamed and unafraid. And I pray that would be true for every one of us as you send us into different places at different times. We may not stand on the steps of a temple proclaiming in front of a crowd who wants to kill us. We may be sitting with a friend who's in need, trying to speak of the hope of the life that you offer. So now be glorified in these words in addition to yours, Lord, far inferior to them, but for our benefit we pray. Amen. You okay? You make it? I was trying to go back through some records, and I think that is the longest single passage that we've chosen to, or I've chosen to take in one sermon. And it's really hard to know when to cut off as the story continues and trying to pick it up, but it is, you can tell, definitely one flow of story and one thought. Paul had been constrained by the Spirit, by his own testimony, to go to Jerusalem. That's why he's there. 
It seems very evident that he's there to proclaim the gospel, even though he'd been warned and told that it would cost him his freedom, that he would be arrested. And that comes to fulfillment here. But it's, it's, it's hard to miss the parallels between G, Jesus and Paul in their kind of final journey to Jerusalem. Both knew they were called to suffer and ultimately to lay down their life to proclaim the gospel. Both knew that their journey would eventually lead to Jerusalem, that they would be betrayed, falsely accused, and sentenced by the chief priests and the Pharisees. Both Jesus and Paul were warned not to go. You remember Peter stood in front of Jesus and said, Never, Lord. And Jesus said, Get behind me. That's, that's the will of Satan. The will of God is that I go to Jerusalem. Agabus, just in the last passage, the prophet Agabus came to Paul, bound himself in some dramatic show with his belt and tied him up and said, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, this is going to happen to you. Don't go. So they're both warned, and yet they knew that God was calling them and drawing them, though it would cost them. Both men were beaten, struck on the face, threatened to confess their guilt, to change their testimony. The rioting crowds both shouted the same thing. If you notice in Luke 23, 18, they shouted against Jesus, away with him, away with him. And here they are some years later shouting the same thing against Paul, away with this man. And yet both Paul and Jesus would be unyielding in their testimony. And ultimately, the center of that testimony for Jesus, it was this. Whosoever looks unto me and believes will be saved. And that was Paul's consistent message. Whosoever looks unto, unto Jesus and believes will be saved. Now, I find it interesting that today, if we hear that claim of Jesus, we put the emphasis and the question on the word saved. Saved? What do you mean saved? Who, who needs to be saved? Saved from what? But the emphasis here in Scripture and with these Jews, the emphasis was on the whosoever. That's what incensed them. Whosoever? Are you talking about all peoples? And notice that Paul was allowed to speak before them all the way up until he said, essentially, God sent me to proclaim the hope of life and life eternal to all peoples, to the Gentiles. A Gentile simply was a non-Jewish person. It's ethnes, an ethnic one, just someone other than a Jew. And that's what incensed the crowd. That's when they said, speak no more. The emphasis and the question was on the whosoever, the all peoples, And really, of all the claims of Jesus, that's one that incensed the crowd as much as any other, that Jesus claimed to come and to bring life to all peoples. And his life was his message, as Jesus would be accused of hanging out with sinners so often that he was called a a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. And Paul had been sent in a similar way. So prejudice, racism, elitism, and arrogance run deep. And not much has changed. So you want to be like Jesus. Isn't that the whole call of the follower of Jesus? Is to become more and more like Him? 
Jesus invited his first disciples, follow me and I will make you. They said, I'll make you into fishers of men because they were fishermen and they, they got it. And I like to emphasize that I will make you. I will give you a whole new identity, a whole new purpose in life, a whole new mission. I will equip you and empower you for it. Follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There was a way about Jesus. Not just a set of theories or ideologies or doctrines to believe, but a way of living, a way of practice. The passage we finished with last week from Mark, Mark 8.34. Jesus called the crowd to him, the whole crowd, with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. There's an actual following of Jesus. Now we know Jesus wasn't saying that every person will be called to walk toward his own crucified death, an actual literal cross. And when he spoke that, that didn't quite even make sense to those hearing him. Jesus hadn't yet gone to his own death and crucifixion. But they understood what he was saying. There's a hard way of following me. When Jesus said the way is narrow that leads to life, he wasn't speaking of primarily of life eternal, as if only a few can find that and make it in. God's love is for all peoples. What Jesus was saying is my way is narrow. The world will offer you any amount of choices and ways you want to live. But to follow my way is pretty specific. But the result is the fullness of life. The result is the fullness of life and life abundant here, not just for eternity. Enter into it. Jesus also promised in Matthew 10, 24 and following, a disciple, a follower, is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, it's a slander, by the way, how much more will they malign those of his household? And then he said in John fifteen twenty, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. These are the kind of passages that we tend to like to leave to the margins in our pursuit after Jesus. And in no way does it mean we are to be running after opportunities to be persecuted or, or to suffer for our faith. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. The call is to be faithful and to follow Jesus. And nor does it mean we'll be asked to experience the same kinds of things. Paul had a very specific call and walked it out. Day by day, faithfulness is what we're called to. The general call is to lay down our life and to do so daily. And maybe the center prayer of that is the same prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, this is hard to maybe speak of an incredible understatement. This is hard. Let it pass from me. Take it from me. Deliver me from it. Rescue me. But not my will, but yours be done. You want to da- What does it mean to daily lay down our life to follow Jesus? It's that prayer. That prayer from the heart. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. It's not a wrong prayer. Jesus himself prayed in the midst of suffering in the midst of pain, in the midst of loss. Lord, take this from me. He wept. He was sweating like blood. 
in anguish. When you find yourself in those places, that's a very right prayer. It's not some trite, Lord, this too is from you. Help me see it and receive it. Bring all of that emotion to the Lord. And somehow get to a place that you recognize who God is. His love for you is more than you ever thought. More than you could possibly know. He sees all things. He knows all things. He knows all pain and all suffering. He is with you. And so the prayer then becomes, but not my will, but yours. Because yours is the way of life. Help us, Lord. A simple prayer, not at all easy, to come from our heart. Paul prayed and kind of wrote in his letter to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. No longer is it my life. I've been bought. I've been purchased by the blood of Christ. And so may he live through me in whatever way would bring him the most glory. If we try to save our life, that's what Jesus said, whoever tries to save your life in your own strength, your own way, to find security, to find comfort, to find meaning, all on your own, all in your own pursuits, whoever tries to save their life will ultimately lose it. But whoever is willing to lay it down to follow me will find it. Not just life eternal, but life abundant. As I mentioned last week, we will live and die for something or someone. We are always giving our life away to what we believe will bring us purpose and meaning and life and security. We are always giving our life away. But worse than dying is never living the life we were created to live. We've already looked at Paul's Reason for going to Jerusalem, fully knowing the persecution was coming. He was constrained by the Spirit. But when he got there, he did something rather odd. And that's probably the piece of the story that I think would would bring the most questions as you heard it. The piece where he takes the advice of his brothers in Jerusalem to enter into this, this vow, this ceremonial cleansing, this ritual that these other men had already entered into. And it just seems striking knowing what Paul has been preaching, the freedom of of Christ, the freedom from the law. And here he is now actually taking advice. This is verse uh, 22 of chapter 21. So what's to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do therefore what we tell you. Here's these four men under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. Apparently, haircuts were expensive back then. There was an offering that came along with this vow to complete it, to kind of show your devotion. There was a lot of show in in the religious ceremonies and devotion in those days. So thus, if they see you, right, if these that want to arrest you and kill you and persecute you, if they see you entering into this ceremony... Well, at minimum, at least, maybe it would give them pause. Wait a minute, maybe everything we thought about Paul isn't quite true. If here he is in the temple, providing an offering, shaving his own head, entering into a ceremonial cleansing, a Jewish uh, tradition, huh, maybe we need to reconsider. Maybe, and for Paul, and we, we, we would wonder, for as much as Paul was resistant to the council of friends, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go, and he goes anyway. Here's something that seems even stranger for him to enter into, and he says, okay, And it turns out the plan didn't really work, I guess. So not every amount of advice in Scripture is of the Lord. 
But Paul did enter into this vow. He listens and he, he's uh, purified according to their tradition and he brings the offering to the temple. Now there is some history of this. Paul seemed to blur the lines when it came to traditions and ceremonies in, in the Jewish faith as he was now a follower of Jesus. Jesus came and fulfilled all of the law. He didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. He gave it all its meaning and its purpose. But especially in the areas of ceremonial cleansing and sacrifice. I mean, there was an entire Jewish council. This is Acts 15. It's been, what, a year and a half since we've been in Acts 15, so it's probably not fresh of mind. But in Acts 15, there was this uh, tension about how much do we now, as followers of Jesus, Jews now following Jesus, all we've ever known is our traditions and our ceremonies and our feasts and observing the law. Now we're following Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled all of the law. The curtain in the temple was literally torn in two. He's the final sacrifice. He's, the, he's the, the new covenant in his blood by his body. How much do we still follow? Do we throw it all out? Do, do some, some were saying you actually needed to become fully Jewish in order to even follow Jesus. After, after all, Jesus himself was a Jew. And so there was all of this tension and this council and they were met for days and they prayed and they finally came to a place and had just a few things on the list that they felt would be the most beneficial for the whole church. And circumcision wasn't on it, and sacrifice wasn't on it, and uh, ceremonial cleansing and purification, it wasn't on the list. It didn't make the list. Go and preach to the Gentiles, all non-Jews, that all they need is to believe in Jesus, just as Jesus said. They don't need to conform to the law or to religious regulations. They need to trust in Christ his blood, his sacrifice, and his grace alone. That is it. And so then when we see Paul taking someone like Timothy and having him circumcised, when we see him in Corinth entering into a voluntary vow of purification, it seems contrary. But for Paul, Paul's primary purpose was to always advance the gospel, to look for any opportunity to possibly preach, to build a relationship with someone and he would do anything, as long as it didn't compromise his faith and his beliefs, he would do just about anything to gain an audience to proclaim the gospel. And I believe that's what he is doing here as he enters into this vow, just looking for an opportunity to preach to a broader group of Jews there in Jerusalem that the hopes is some would hear him and come to faith in Christ. Here's a more modern parallel potentially for us. The season of Lent is coming up, and depending on your traditions, you either maybe strictly followed a, a Lenten season, a liturgy in your church gatherings. Uh, maybe you're a little further removed from that, but even then, in the Lenten season, 40 days leading up to Easter, uh, you engage in some form of fasting. Traditional for the church would be some form of fasting from food, whether that was an entire, fa- uh, an entire fast, some even engaged an entire 40-day fast, taking nothing but liquids. Others, a little more common for the church, would, would take Monday through Saturday fasts. And on the Lord's Day, they would eat. And they would do that for the 40 days leading up to Easter. Some would just engage in a, a one-meal-a-day fast. Others would, would fast from some form of comfort or luxury. You know, a little more modern might be uh, fasting from sugar for the 40 days. Or alcohol or television, just to potentially, hopefully, prepare for a greater celebration at Easter, 
the greater fulfillment of all that Jesus has done. But that same fast, the, the, the point is that same fast, it all depends on the heart, doesn't it? One person could engage in the fast trying to appear more holy and religious than they are or try to earn God's favor and salvation or to get God to answer the prayers that they've been praying and have heard no answer for. A little all kind of self-centered. Another could engage in the very same fast with the simple desire to be reminded daily as they choose to not partake in whatever that was, to be reminded daily to pray. And no one else may even know. They may not share it whatsoever. Someone else might say, I just want to be closer to Jesus. And I need those daily reminders. Jesus had something similar to, to this point in Matthew six sixteen. He said, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. They go around kind of just, oh, mopey. Oh, you're in a fast, aren't you? Yes, I'm in a long fast but the Lord is sustaining me. Pray for me. He said, don't, don't show it to anyone. It's between you and your Lord. Truly, I say to you, those, that, those hypocrites have received their reward. The only reward they get is that, that other person who might say, oh, you are so spiritual. That's it. That's all they get. <laughs> but when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by you, your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And really, I think we could apply this message to any of our spiritual devotions. The Lord has seen it. We're communing with the Lord. It's not, it's not for others. Now, if it comes up in conversation, that's one thing. But to proclaim as if we could proclaim our holiness or our righteousness, woe to us. Lord, help us. Now, ironically, I'm going to call us in this Lenten season not to a fast, but to actually eat. So stay tuned for that as we go a little counter. Now, here's Paul engaging in this fast, this ceremony, to try to gain an audience to preach at a broader level when Paul himself was one who proclaimed Everything now in Jesus is permissible. But not everything is beneficial. There's such freedom in Christ, and with freedom comes great responsibility. We're actually called to pursue the heart of God, to know Him, to love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. Religion is a whole lot easier in some ways. Give me the black and the white, the do's and the don'ts. Just tell me what and I'll do it, or at least I'll try to obey. And you can check your mind at the door. And following Jesus requires a personal relationship of seeking his heart and his will. And there's some things that are very clear, but there's so many that are up for interpretation in wrestling through how do we follow the heart and the will of the Lord? How do we love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Paul's motives were pure and simple. His heart was devoted to the Lord. His mission was to proclaim the gospel even if it cost him his life. And he was willing to do anything to proclaim that message. Again, ironically, what gets Paul arrested, what gets incenses the crowd, is not that Jesus saves, 
but that God loves all peoples the same. Isn't that incredible? As soon as he said, I've been called to all peoples, the Gentiles, to proclaim the hope of God, not just Jews, but to all peoples, they would hear him no more. They cut it off. A Jew would have nothing to do with a non-Jew, maybe in business dealings, maybe not, depending on how strict they were. They certainly wouldn't even eat together because they were ceremonially unclean and they would keep their distance in relationship in all ways. So for Paul to proclaim that Jesus has come, the Son of God, to save all peoples, and that was his primary message, they wanted none of it. But we want to be like Jesus. Jesus, friend of sinners. Jesus pursues the tax collectors. He spares the adulterers. He touches the lepers. He counsels the Samaritans, those on the outskirts of society those marginalized, those slandered. This is the way of Jesus. And Paul said, verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death. The way itself seemed like blasphemy to me. And I was proud to crucify or to kill, to stone those who proclaimed it and lived it. Until Jesus came and changed Paul's way. He blinded him that he could truly see to change everything that he had been about. Paul records that here, or proclaims that here, what's recorded in Acts 9, his transformation when Jesus himself met him on the Damascus road and opened his eyes to God's love for all peoples, that Jesus broke down every wall of division. The curtain in the temple was torn, and if that wall was broken for all peoples to have access to the presence of God, then every wall between peoples is broken as well in Jesus. This is the core of Paul's preaching as you trace through some of his letters and his writings. Galatians 3, 26, For in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Anyone, as many, anyone. So there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, neither male nor female, For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are all Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. By faith you're adopted. Everyone, no distinction, no division. We saw more recently in Ephesians that Jesus has broken down the dividing walls of hostility. Ephesians 2.11 and following. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh... You, you were called the uncircumcision by, by those that are part of the circumcision group. But that's done with the hands. It's done in the flesh. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise. And so you had no hope and you were without God in the world. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now what would have come to mind, certainly for any Jewish audience, maybe even for Gentiles who had made a journey to Jerusalem at some point, in speaking of walls, at the temple in Jerusalem there were many walls Many layers of getting to the actual temple and even within the temple, separations of room. 
to the very presence of God in the innermost sanctuary. And some of those temples in the courts around the temple divided peoples out. There was a wall that was as far as any Jewish woman could go. And she could go no further. There was another wall that divided out any non-Jew. Even if you were putting faith into Yahweh and came to worship and sacrifice, you were only permitted to come so far and no further to the presence of God. And on that wall, it was called the dividing wall of the Gentiles, all non-Jewish people, on that wall was this inscription, no foreigner may enter through this barricade which surrounds this sanctuary. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. The Romans who were in authority, at least judicial authority, and authority of enforcing the political law, they, they gave the Jews right to execute in accordance with their customs if a Gentile broke this. They were given permission to simply execute. Can you imagine? Even someone coming to worship God who was not a Jew themselves, but coming to worship Yahweh and bring a sacrifice, had they come too close, they would forfeit their life. So when Paul speaks of breaking down walls, every wall of hostility, of division, it actually was a matter of life and death. And it was amazing to behold. And this is the very issue. This is the reason why they arrested Paul. They falsely accused him. See, he hung out with Gentiles so much. I mean, that was part of his group anyway that was traveling with him. They just picked on one. You saw Trophimaeus, the Greek, He probably had like the longest hair and the piercings and some skin tattoos. Let's pick on that one. You saw him with him. He's a friend of Gentiles. He brought him into the temple. He crossed the line. He's he's deserving of death. Now, Paul may have anyway, but he didn't need to. This is a false accusation just as they falsely accused Jesus. But that's what incensed them. Racism. Elitism. And at the center of Paul's message is that God has come to love all peoples. And that's ultimately why they wanted him put to death. I wonder, I believe, that Paul knew. He's eloquent enough in a public setting. And he's building a pretty good argument to the Jews about why they should release him. I was zealous. I followed the way of the law. Look at me, I still do. I still honor. I still love Yahweh. I'm simply proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth. I think he could have gained his freedom if he would have stopped short of proclaiming salvation and life in Jesus for all peoples. But I think for Paul, that wasn't even an option. To not preach that is to not preach the gospel. And Paul was willing to lay down his life for it. He'd already laid it down time and again. He'd been beaten 40 lashes minus one. 40 lashes was supposed to kill a man. And he'd been beaten that way multiple times. Makes sense that he speaks up here and says, is there any way out of this? (laughs) I'm a Roman citizen. Can you do this? He didn't want to go through it again. He may not have survived it. So you want to be like Jesus. You want to follow his way. It may require more suffering and more persecution than any of us 
want or ask for. Obviously, we're in a very different culture than they were. It doesn't mean we won't face persecution or marginalization for proclaiming Jesus as the way and the only way by simply proclaiming his words and sharing them, not in any form of arrogance, because he too accepted anyone, even me. But he says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God the Father except through him. That's his claims, not mine. We may face persecution and marginalization for that. At the same time that we say, for all peoples, even you. Likely it won't cost us our life. Likely we won't be stretched out for the whips. But we want to be like Jesus. Then we say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Add to me boldness in all places to proclaim who you are. Because there are people who are lost without you, just as I was. We are but beggars who found the source of bread. We don't provide the bread. Wouldn't you tell everyone if they were starving to death? If there was a supply of bread around the corner that they didn't know about? If there was a deep well of water while people are dying of thirst? You'd proclaim it all. Not because you dug the well, not because you baked the bread, but because you found the free source. And that's what we're called to for all peoples. So you want to be like Jesus. How are you doing breaking down walls? How are you doing crossing the natural dividers and barriers that exist everywhere we look? Now, racism is probably a little more subtle than it was in that day. And I say probably intentionally. What about the lines of division that exist between us politically? What about divisions religiously between those that claim to be Christian to Muslims, Hindus, Jews? What about the lines that clearly exist between those that claim to be Christians and the LGBTQ community? You want to be like Jesus. You need to break down walls, every wall, at risk of being misunderstood, labeled, slandered, rejected, and persecuted. I ask you who Jesus would be hanging out with today if he lived in Seattle. Who would Paul be eating with? I think we know the answer. Paul lived his whole life this way, looking for opportunities to build bridges, to create windows for the gospel, because he was called and compelled. 1 Corinthians 9 16 and following, he said, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me. His whole purpose in life to make known who Jesus is and what he has done. Skipping to verse 19. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I would see more one for Jesus. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. That's exactly what he was doing here to build a bridge to have a platform to continue to proclaim the truth of the gospel. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, but just so you know, it looked like it. So as to win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, Paul had a unique call and was uniquely gifted. We know that. But this that he's describing is the call of every follower of Jesus, expressed in different ways. 
You want to be like Jesus. It's going to be it's a requirement to follow the ways of Jesus. At risk of what it may cost us. Being misunderstood, labeled, judged, slandered. How do we become all things to all peoples without for a moment losing our own identity, our own personality, our own beliefs, our own convictions? We're not talking about any of that. Paul wasn't. But Paul could distinguish between what was eternal and what was temporal. What was going to pass away and mean nothing to what was going to last forever. And that's how he entered into every place and every relationship. And he was not interested in the approval of man. Or certainly he wrestled with that and tried to put it to death daily. He said in Galatians 1.10, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of my God? If I were still trying to seek the approval of man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Because it may cost me everything unto the end of my life. We must surround ourselves with all kinds of people. That does not mean we are condoning all ways of life or believing and agreeing with all perspectives and thoughts. We are choosing to see all peoples as Jesus did. Not as Muslim or Republican or gay or Hindu or 49ers fan or any other label that we might put on somebody. Those are not identity markers. The only identity markers are this is a son or a daughter of God created in His image and they are either lost or they are found in Him. That's it. And until someone actually hears who Jesus is and what He has really done, not what a general perspective of the world says, but what He says about Himself, until that happens... And that person decides to receive or reject. That is all that matters. And that's our call and our mission. And so, you hung in there. Good job. The Lenten season's coming up. Maybe some of you have already prepared to fast. I'm not saying don't. But in the midst of that, can you eat? Can we be counter? Can we be like Jesus? Who was eating and drinking so often that he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. He wasn't. But that's who he was spending time with. That's how he spent his time. That's how he ministered. He ate, he listened, he shared, he pointed people to God his Father and to the truth, to the hope of the gospel for why he had come. And so I called us at the beginning of 2020 with a simple vision to read, to pray, and to eat. We've been focusing a lot on reading through the gospels, praying first, last, and central. How about eating? How have you been doing? I said, could you eat once a week with someone that you don't know that well? Maybe it's someone from church. Maybe it's a group. Maybe it's another family. Maybe you go to their house. Maybe you have them over. Are you eating one meal a week with others to get to know them? No other agenda. To listen, to hear, to build relationship. And then once a month, because this one's a little more of a stretch usually for us, are you having someone at your table? Maybe it's a restaurant table. Maybe it's your apartment table. Maybe it's your home. Having someone at your table who's never been there before. Ideally, someone that you're in relatively close relationship with, coworker, fellow student, neighbor. They might be very different than you. All the better. You might have to do that trickiness of, so, so uh, what, do you, what do you eat? What can you eat? How can I serve? Sometimes we just stop there because I don't know if I can, I don't, know, I don't know how to make a meal for these neighbors. You know, in our neighborhood, I think our eight closest neighbors, we've had 
Muslims, Catholics, Latter-day Saints, Buddhists, the chic neighbors haven't come yet, but they live another street down. It's coming. I don't believe we have any gay neighbors. We've had co-workers who are gay over. When we lived in Wisconsin, our next-door neighbors were Mary and Mary. We had more meals with them in three years than any of our friends from church. To follow the ways of Jesus, we are breaking bread to break down walls. It is simple, not easy. And there is risk involved with that. Even sharing that, there's a sense of potential risk. And I just encourage us all to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and to pursue people as he did. What good is it to gain the whole world? but to forfeit our soul. Invite the team to come and let's pray. Father, I'm burdened. You know that because there's so much more that could be proclaimed. And I'm trusting You with this to be continued. To continually, faithfully pursuing You and proclaiming the whole counsel of Your Word for Your saints and for those who are coming to know You for the first time. Thank You for the boldness of Paul. Thank you that he also wasn't perfect and he needed you desperately and deeply just as we all do. He was a beggar who found the bread. We are beggars who have found the source of life in you. Help us tell all peoples. For your glory and our joy, we respond to you and you alone today. Amen.